Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I'm your host, Tom Richardson, and I'm delighted today to be joined by CEO and founder of Napier, Mr. Julian Dixon. Now, Julian and I had never spoken to each other prior to recording this interview, and um, I'd been hearing more and more about him and his company on the industry grapevine, as it were, and I was very kindly introduced by a mutual acquaintance, Thank you, Ben Zorg. And I have to say, whilst recording the interview, I was just really impressed by Julian and his story. And I recognised it was a good interview. And just listening to it back again now, as I have been while editing this this episode, I recognised there was even more that, that sort of stood out for me. So I'm really excited to share this one with you. And I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Julian now, and he can tell us how his journey into RegTech began. So, I mean, my background is financial services and actually banking mostly uh, for my career. I, I worked in, in various banks in various locations. You know, I worked in London, New York, Tokyo. I worked for JP Morgan. I worked for Deutsche Bank. I worked for Commerce Bank. So I've got a big, a big background in banking which included actually all the way from the back office to, to the front office. Um, and then lat- latterly, I um, was involved in, in tech uh, through being an angel investor in tech, um, yeah. but mostly wholly unsuccessfully. Um, so so having, having seen how not to do it, I, I did think that I should perhaps um, give it a go myself. And I was actually working... Um, uh, as a contractor uh, on a project uh, for the DOJ in New York on um, some remediation work um, on on anti money laundering, and I had a background in anti money laundering just through my twenty plus years in the banking industry. Um, yeah. And um, having having worked on this project, it it kind of um, dawned upon me that some of the tools that we were using um, that we were building in in a kind of room together. I had some technical guys with me. Were actually were actually better than the tools the banks had or were able to deploy themselves. So we then we then kind of took it further and we used um, some of the the, the more up to date technologies. You know, we, big data architecture, the use of machine learning, and um, slowly from from that dawned what is now Napier. Um, so it's and that's a a, a story kind of seven years in the making um five years being um what you know when we set up napier so napier has been around for about five years and we set up napier really as a result of that we realized that banks were continually being fined continually being put across the media across newspapers with all sorts of stories and we've all we've all read those stories and the amount of fines is actually pretty incredible and you know there's there's two things happening there isn't there there's there's banks being unable for whatever reason to 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 um understand or to um fulfill their regulatory obligations and there's also a problem we felt very much with legacy technology that was not helping them to do that <clears throat> excuse me so so we believed that by building um really up to date new products um on the latest technology that meant we could deploy it 
cheaper, faster, better within inbuilt machine learning um, would give the banks an advantage both when talking to the regulators, but more importantly, when dealing with financial crime or attempts at financial crime within their own organisation. Just taking a step back for a moment, I'm always intrigued to ask entrepreneurs, is uh, is starting your own business something that you had always known that you would eventually do? You know, when you were younger, when you were a kid, had you known that one day you'd run your own business? I think I think I think I wanted to be a film star, but that was more uh, fa- fantasy than uh, than anything else. I think, I mean, when I was you know in my late teens, I wanted to work in financial services, and that's primarily because I came to university in London, and and it seemed like a really um, nice option. You know, if you live in London, I, you know, I come from Shropshire, and and you know, financial services and banking aren't really really a thing there. But coming to London and and finding out about the city really piqued my interest and I and I kind of uh, you know at the age of you know 20 really wanted to join um, in 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 banking and I did that and I did it you know reasonably successfully for a number of years <clears throat> and then it gets to a point where you know you don't want the industry or or the industry doesn't doesn't want you anymore and, and yeah. then you've got to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life and, I, and I'd had you know reasonably senior positions in in those companies so I did a bout of consulting which was great but you're always um, not not in the place you want to be professionally and also in your work-life balance and and for me setting up a company was the ideal way to to satisfy both of those because I have young children um, and you know I I have a responsibility to them so I kind of have to drop them off at school and pick them up and all this kind of stuff and and actually having Having your own company lent lent to the fact that you could have a more flexible um, work life balance. Um, and, and interestingly, as a company, you know, and we're more than fifty people in the company now, um, we we have that ethos throughout the company, where you know we don't we don't necessarily ask people to do regular nine to five hours. Yeah. We just we just we're, we're kind of task task based. So people have got their jobs to do, and we we trust them to do it no matter where they are. And that's and that's actually worked out really well for us in the last four months with COVID yeah. because you know Napier working at home has been you know we're in the office or we're at home but quite often people are at home and now we're all at home yeah. it's not really you know we've not we've not skipped a heartbeat it's been it's been a really good thing and that and that really came out of the requirements that you have as adults in your life you know around children more than anything um, yeah. but setting up a company is is a big step and I never intended to do it but I think, you know, you, you, you have times in life where you see an opportunity and you can either you can either grab that opportunity or or not. And, and quite often, I think you can spend hours and hours regretting things that you didn't do. And yeah. it's, you know, I know it's a bit of an old adage, but it's, it's better to regret things that you do do. So yeah. I, I took the opportunity. Um, in hindsight, it was, um, you know, a very big leap. And, and you know, there was a lot of. Um, hard work and heartache um as well as all of the the good things um along the way um but ultimately if you're successful of course it's always it's always a really great place to be but uh, it's the difference between success and failure is actually perhaps finer than than anyone can can appreciate yeah well you've alluded to it there so what were what were some of the major early challenges that you can recall so we're we're talking about 
2015, 2016, that sort of time? 2015, yeah. So, I mean, I think... Um, particularly in this space, you know, what, what we'd underestimated was the reluctance of, of clients to um, change their platforms from what they had to what we, what we have. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, and I'm sure, you know, the people listening to this will understand them um, perhaps even, even better than me. I mean, there is, you know, selling into banks is quite a long process. And um, there's a lot of um, investment made in the platforms they have um, and a lot of years, a lot of money. And there's obviously often a lot of emotional content in that as well. Yeah. So, so changing platforms in banks is, is quite a big decision for, for them to make. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, we, we would assume that, or we had assumed that being, you know, half the price and twice as good was good enough, but the reality it's not, you know, you've got to have more than that. And, and I think that secret source is a combination of a lot of things. But one of the things in this space is having longevity and tenure and trust in the market. And you can only get that after a number of years. You know, yeah. you have to be in this market for a number of years. So after five years, you know, we have we are beginning and uh, I think have got the trust of certainly all of our clients. And we're gaining the trust of people who who we want to be our clients. They've seen that we're here and we're here to stay. And uh, you know the, the the software we've got can add some real value to them. Yeah, from a very practical point of view, when you look at that first sort of two years, say, of, of founding the business, what are there, are there, were there any particular things that you look back on and think, oh, I wish I kind of done that differently? Well, I think. Well, I mean, there, there's there's always a lot of things that you could have done differently, and perhaps should have done differently, and you try and learn from you know your past mistakes and and also from people's mistakes that you can either read in blogs online or or in books um but but the reality is is you know running a running a business particularly where you take external investment you are still beholden to your investors and thus you know the, you know and there there is the golden rule and the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules so so you 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 are typically um focused on revenue um above anything else um and and that that can be quite difficult because you're perhaps often running ahead of your your development cycles um and and your sales cycles are are you know are, are, are tricky because of that um so it's quite a long hard road so so to answer your question specifically i think you know if i was to do this again i would ensure that we had enough funding not to need any sales for the first 24 months and it would all be about building product reputation going to shows writing blogs and just getting a name out there you know maybe doing a bit of um consulting and then and then coming to market with with an amazing product set and then you've got all of that track record behind you that's yeah. probably what i would do if i did it today do you think that's even possible? Do you know what I mean? Because it's a, such a catch-22, right? Like, it, So even if you're someone with successes under your belt that you can point towards, could you still convince the money people that this is how you're going to go about doing it and you know, you'll know you see the proof in the pudding 24 months' yeah, time so, rather so, than now? So, Tom, it, it is possible. It's just not probable. So I think you know the, the money guys, um, I think it helps if you've got a track record. And at that yeah. time, I didn't have a track record, so it probably wasn't possible. For me at that time but you know you see you know lots of um, serial entrepreneurs who've got companies and then you try and look in them 
and they have things on the website saying in stealth mode you know so yeah. they are they are working um behind the scenes for a period of time to engineer their products to a point where they're happy to release them so yes it is done it is a it is a you know a well-known route to market a lot of people do it successfully but i don't think necessarily first time entrepreneurs do that because they're, they're normally self-funded and a lot of our early beginnings were all self-funded through sweat equity and you know and putting money into the company um and we just didn't have the ability to do that yeah and so what did that founding team look like um some yeah some it's me and me and former colleagues so the cohort that set set napier up are um people i used to work with um in fact all of them were people i used to work with people i used to work with when i in my consulting days and people i used to work with when i was in banking and there were three other guys um all whom are still with napier today and they form the core team um and they are you know amazing colleagues and good friends as well maybe a good time for a shout out to those guys yeah absolutely so we have luca primarano who's our head of um uh, ai and machine learning um we have david polterak who is our genius cto and we have nick portalski who is the amazing head of product and so it's handy that you even knew these guys, right? So you've got an almost out of the box founding team for for Napier. So those colleagues from when you were consulting with these various businesses or investing in those various businesses, is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, Luke, Luca was a slight exception. Um, I worked with Luca at, at Deutsche Bank um, for a period of time, um, and he had gone off to do various different things. You know, he was working at Goldman Sachs, and then he was consulting and. And, you know, we'd always had a plan um, that we should work together. And then this opportunity came up and, um, you know, he, he, he joined us without a moment's hesitation. And that, they say, you know, is the beginning of where it all started. <laughs> Very nice. And so maybe you could tell us where, what the situation is for Napier right now. So what's the, the size of the business? What stage are you at uh, for anyone who's uh, in the unlikely event that they're not familiar with Napier? Sure, in the unlikely event, yeah. So we are um, a company that is currently scaling. Um, we, we've hired, in, in COVID times, we've actually onboarded 17 new hires. Wow. Um, we, we have, um, in, in this period of lockdown, we, we purchased um, all of the assets in the anti-money laundering um, space from Refinitiv. So they had products called Screening Deployed and Transwatch. So we, we purchased all of those. So we've got uh, more than 180 clients globally spread um, across all continents, I oh, think. When did, when did that go through? And we're, uh, April the 10th. Wow, okay. So, so we are you know, actively in a very strong partnership with Refinitiv. Um, they obviously provide data and we've got product and we're, you know, we have a program to upgrade all of those clients. You know, we are... Um, uh, we have our engineering is is done out of kiev um so we have a very strong engineering team in kiev um and we opened an office in singapore earlier in the year um you know we would obviously look to go to the north america um but we're, we're a little bit constrained now because of covid and yeah. and, and whatever so tra traveling you know to and from there's a bit difficult at the moment so so that'll get delayed a bit you know hopefully we can do it sooner rather than later so so we're rapidly growing, you know, our client base is rapidly growing, both through acquisition and organic growth. Um, 
we've you know we've penetrated tier one so we're, we're at we're at the beginning really of of the journey of napier now i would say yeah what are your visions for the future of napier what's if we were to fast forward five years what does it look like so we you know we continue to develop products that are fit for the whole market it was always our ambition not to just serve a particular segment of the market and it was also our ambition not to have single product sets so we've got a, a very joined up product set um, front to back anti-money laundering that can be that can be used um, effectively by the very smallest of banks and also the very largest of banks and you know we've got different deployment models to cater for that you know we have inbuilt um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and that in in the industry you know no matter what people say is still in its infancy and there's a lot of um, you know work being done and to be done with the regulators to get that into a place where it's really becoming very effective but we're, we're on that journey and we're on that journey with our clients um, uh, and all of our custom all of our customers and and it was our it was also our ambition to ensure that the product um, albeit it's got a lot of complex things in it is to is to show that to our clients in a very simple way so you can add layers of complexity to it depending where you are in in the you know the, the genesis of, of what your program looks like or or as it goes through stages and becomes more complex so we would always say to people um, don't start with machine learning that's not the place to start you need to get the basics right you need to get the rule sets right you need to get a structured program in place importantly you need to get your policies and procedures done first and then our software can be implemented to reflect those policies and procedures and when you've got some comfort level around that you can start to implement layers of complexity around machine learning and artificial intelligence to really to really start to hunt out the bad actors in in your organization and the data who who are coming through the system and i would say you know our ambition for five years time is to do more of the same we are continually getting feedback from our clients we listen to all feedback it goes into the product um, we we don't have any um, custom products built for separate clients anything that that we build goes into the product and is, and is released to everybody in a in a future release and and we will continue to do that so it's our job to make um, uh, the, the job of the compliance officer less tiresome by sifting through endless amounts of um, data, which are mainly false positives or irrelevant, um, and to help them focus on the real, um, the real nub of the of the problems they've got, i.e., highlighting the data and the transactions and the names, etc., that really do need time to be spent on it. And our job is all the time in the next five years to make that journey as easy as possible and give them as much help as possible to do that. Looking forwards for a moment, do you have any predictions for the future of name screening? So, well, beyond beyond five years, it is a bit difficult. But you know, within within five years, I think um, I think a lot of interesting things will happen. The one the one thing that we know, and I guess all of the the listeners know, is is that the regulatory hurdles don't get smaller; they only get bigger. You know, year on year and region by region. So. So what what can we do? So you need to be using technology to help ease that burden. It it really is the only way. Well, the other way is to is to have lots of people yeah. doing it, and that and that you know 
as we've seen, doesn't doesn't really you know help help people in the long run. It help people in the short run, but not the long run. So, I would say that you know in tier ones there there I believe, and you saw there was a fine with Commerce Bank this week, and they cited a couple of things. One was um, lack of policy and procedure, or coherent policy and procedure, and that is something that we are always talking about to our clients. You've got to have policy and procedure, otherwise the rules the rules are meaningless, right? Yeah. Um, the second thing they had there was, um, I think it was not not doing adequate client client reviews on a risk basis. There was some failure there, and I think you know we 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 believe that that's the nub of the matter in that um, banks and financial institutions need to look not at transactional data as a transaction, but they need to look at it at a customer perspective. So changes in behaviour in the customer, whether it's in transactions whether it's in the underlying um, company structure whether it's in payments they make to people those changes in behavior are reflective of changes in behavior that may indicate um, uh, money laundering patterns so so we believe a customer centric view um, is vitally important going forward um, i think for tier ones that's um, uh, going to be a little bit of a challenge perhaps because they are so geographically um, diverse and and siloed in their in their structure just through the nature of how they've grown but you know having having a view of a client who might be a personal might have a personal account they may have multiple company accounts and they might need to work in different geographical regions so you say if they work for a big international bank they can have accounts both company and private all over the world and the bank won't necessarily look at them as a single entity yeah and I think that's what you need to do. Um, and thus, thus we have, you know, the idea of a holistic view of clients. Um, we have a product for that client activity review where the data's plugged in and you can view a client holistically across border, across product, across silos. Is that, is that... And I think that's, so for tier ones, that's quite a difficult thing to do. As you go down and you talk to smaller organizations, they kind of do that anyway. So the KYC guy is the same as the transaction monitoring guy. Yeah. Whereas in a, in a big bank, the KYC guy is in one continent and the, 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 the transaction monitoring guy is in another continent. So for smaller organizations, they're already perhaps at an advantage because they're doing that somewhat, but bigger organizations need to start to um, globally coordinate this. When you say smaller organizations, you also mean potentially fintech. So, so when they're building some of these things from scratch, obviously it's easier to, to, yeah, to factor some of the things absolutely. in the outset. Because I get that the, the single customer view is obviously the nirvana that people always talk about. Um, but it's, it's difficult to see how possible it could be for a, uh, for a large tier one bank. And I mean, I know people are, are trying to crack that nut, but um, are there, are there, is there anyone out there that's really doing that in the tier one space at the moment? Uh, well, only Napier, yeah. Uh, we're, we're, so, so, we, so we think that we can do it. We've got some use cases that we're starting to build out now. It's not um, an overnight um, hammer to crack a nut. It's going to take, you know, quite a long time. And it's, and it's not just the technical capability. It's a bit of a hearts and minds. And then you've also got the regulation, depending on what you can do with the data, et cetera. But it's all, it's all very doable. Um, and, and I think, you know, going back to the questions, what will happen in the next five years? I think over the next five years, 
I would hope that we see more and more of that so so that the banks or the financial institutions can really be in control of that process. Yeah. Do you, do you think, presumably, there is an opportunity that's not compliance related in that single customer view, right? And so, and so that would be a fair win that would uh, give the, make it desirable for these banks to invest in it. It's like a, so outside of the compliance yes i mean i think i mean all banks would desire to have um a single customer view for um all of their their risk and all of their all of their kind of um selling across channels um for sure and and they and they do you know have programs in place in many places to do this but it, it's interesting because they may be able to use the compliance stick to to drive that forward and we've we've always said you know beyond compliance and anti-money laundering, you know, you could start to mine the data that, that we have in our products um, for other things within the bank. And that includes, you know, um, feeding it into the CRM system so that that's visible across all the channels in the bank. So there's definitely cross-pollination with other areas and, and you could look at it as either a way to get that or you could, you, you know, the compliance guys could look at it as, um, a way to perhaps cross subsidize that investment yeah um, that that's different to us we focus very much on anti-money laundering um, in terms of transaction monitoring and screening be it client screening payment screening entity screening yeah client activity review and um, the kind of continual kyc um, that, that i talked about and is that important to you to have that focus because you've got companies that try and do too many things and then they end up maybe not doing any of them as well as they could. And then you, from a practical point of view, you spent 10 million of your series B doing it and, and you're not quite where you want to be. And, and now you decide to focus. That's exactly what's happened in maybe half a dozen cases in, in this space. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I, I understand why they might've done that as well, because, um, you know, it, it, you you think that if you throw out many fishing lines, you you know you you're bound to catch one big one somewhere. Um, but we we've we've always avoided that, and we've been quite true true to what we wanted to do, and that that in many ways has been hard um, in our journey. But I think it's paying dividends now. So, you know, the the question is, you know, do we do do we think it's good that we have not um, you know divested our investments into other areas? I think it's important not only for our customers and our investors um but but for everybody really um you know and ourselves so we can we can spend more of our um you know training dollars uh you know teaching people about this 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 area um our engineers are all very now experienced in this our product managers are all experienced in this we can talk to clients you know um with knowledge uh, and focus and we don't have to worry about you know we're doing something in um, another industry and and you know if we had um you know unlimited resources i guess we could do many of these things but we're very much focused on um financial crime um the only the only place where we've had a slight diversion and it's not really a diversion is is the is the area where we see that uh, the fin crime um has extended out through regulation beyond financial services and goes into industry so you know it, it's incumbent upon every organization that trades internationally to ensure or even even domestically to ensure that they are not dealing with people on sanctions lists so we see that as an active area of business and we've you know we've had some quite big wins in industry in the broader sense 
but it's all under that compliance software banner yeah. so we've never strayed outside of that and it's absolutely not our intention to do that so all of the conferences we go to all of the papers we write every bit of thinking we do is all about financial crime in financial services or or in broader industry yeah uh, talking to one of your peers in the industry charlie dellingpole comply vantage he mentioned that he thought that former investors make good company founders basically because there's generally a uh, high barrier for entry for being a, an investor. I think he was actually talking about former VCs. Uh, and, but also it, the point is it gives you good training data. So when you're in the role, you're seeing what's worked, what hasn't worked. Were there any particular lessons that you learned from your experience in investing? Um, yes, and, and a lot of them, uh, or most of them were, were harsh and um, cost cost money. So um i think you know we've, we've just touched on one and that is about focus of the company um it's it's all too easy to get um uh, or lose that focus and therefore you know try and try and be everything to everybody and you just can't be that because people see right through it so having a specialization um and focusing on that is good having having an interest in it um you've got to have an interest in it if you're living and breathing that 24 hours a day for years you've got to be really interested in it and um and absolutely focused on on the outcomes there um and um yeah you know the the, the financial side as well you know it, it it helped me to get a network of people that i could um go and speak to about being seed investors um and that that helped a lot and and because you know i'd been in that market you know not for a long time for a few years um you know i could go and speak to people that i knew who who were really happy to back me yeah are they are you still with those original investors yeah we we've we've taken we're still with the original investors we've taken no vc or pe money um at all um and um you know the original investors have, have stayed with us and in fact they've up funded on 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 additional rounds is it was that in is there any reason behind not wanting to go to VCs or? Um, well, um, you know, for, for the for the guys listening to this, if um, if you are either in that position thinking about it, if you go for VC or PE, there's a lot of advantage that bring, which is which is pretty obvious. You know, you get the money and you get some expertise and they can hopefully introduce you to some clients. But the downside is, is that you have um, at least one if not more than one person sitting on your board that um, potentially can make your life as hard as it is today even harder you know and they will be very target focused and it will all be about the numbers and and i think if that happens you can start to lose some of the integrity of the company that you started out with so you can start cutting corners on you know um on on development or or the things that you should be doing in the industry for for you know the actual end goals of making the world a safer place for the sake of of of, of selling stuff to get the dollars in and and so so you know i'm not i'm not ruling it out ever in the future but i'm really pleased to this point in time we haven't had that our investors have been amazing they've understood the vision they you know sometimes they struggled with it but they they're now in a place where they they kind of completely understand they're on board 
and they're actively helping us on a daily basis to achieve what we want to achieve. Yeah. Nice. Um, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted to pick up on because uh, you can imagine it's of interest to me. Um, you, you've been doing a lot of hiring even during lockdown. I mean, intrigued to know what do you look for? You know, uh, when, when you were bringing people on board, did you have a kind of a philosophy or a, uh, an approach to hiring? We look, we look for, um, you know, uh, it's probably all a bit of a cliche, you know, dynamic individuals with energy. Um, they don't necessarily have to have previous knowledge. Um, they're usually um, highly skilled or highly qualified. Um, but, but we look for people that will fit in to the company culture, you know, and the company culture is one very much of a modern um, uh, reg tech company. You know, we, we work in um, shared office space, you know, we work in a WeWork space, uh, we work from home, um, uh, we, we don't do, you know, a lot of formal uh, meetings, it's all much more casual, you know, we meet over, over pizzas and stuff as companies and drinks, you know, on a Friday afternoon or whatever. So there is a company culture, which, you know, the millennials instantly get and they, and they love it. But for, uh, for older people like myself, um, it, it, it took a little bit of getting used to, but ultimately it benefits everybody the way, the way we work and the openness. And, and we have a fairly flat uh, management structure as well. So when we, when we interview and look for candidates, we look for people that can fit into that, who, you know, perhaps need less direction. Um, and, um, you know, are really passionate about it. And um, we always say, you know, we don't particularly have an expenses policy. We just say, you know, you, you just do what, what's right for the company. You know, if it's right for the company, then we're good with it. Yeah. Uh, how do you go about hiring for good cultural fit? Is it a case of just talking to them? Yeah, like we are now having an interview and using your life's experience yeah. to make that judgment call? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the teams um, all... How they multiple there's multiple interviews no one gets in with one interview i think it's at least three and there and you know we do you know we don't just have the senior guys interviewing we have um you know the more junior guys interviewing as well and make sure that everyone's comfortable and that that person will fit into the team and so the cultural side of it is done through just talking to people yeah i mean that's, that's the best way to do it i think yeah agree and you know we're, we're very i think and i hope we're very open and honest with people and then and then they they respect that and they're open and honest back you know i think that's uh, very true i think people tend to mirror somewhat in an interview the what they're getting right and so if if people are being quite transparent about the um yeah, horrible phrase isn't it but the warts and all kind of uh, summing up of of what they're walking into then they're likely to reciprocate yeah. that i think yeah um i completely agree so, so you mentioned that, that COVID, from a practical sense, has not posed much of an issue for you because of the, guy, the way that you guys have been working up until now. Do, do you have any predictions for how it will affect the market moving forwards? Well, I could talk about the, well, maybe I can talk more generally about tech and financial yeah. services. So, I mean, for us, you know, COVID in the way we work hasn't made us change. But for a lot of our clients, you know, the sales cycle is extended because they've got people you know, working from home, whatever. And it's just, it's changed the sales cycle. So the sales cycles have got a bit longer. But outside of that, when we get back to normal times um, or, or whatever new normal looks like, I do think that a lot of companies will be going back and reviewing from the board level down pandemic planning, because I suspect that most people didn't have it. Um, they certainly have got, you know, DR planning. Yeah. Um, but 
pandemic planning. And, and I suspect a lot of that will um, accelerate um, the, the desire to get onto more modern technology that enables people to work in multi-locations securely. Um, yeah. And that, yeah. and that is an enabler, you know, for us to accelerate because, you know, we have modern technology that you can use in any location securely. And, and I think not just particularly in our sector, but across every part of any organization and beyond banking, there will, there will be, I think, a, a review of what they've got and future planning should this ever happen again. And Lord help us that it doesn't, but if it ever does, you know, people need to be ready for it. Yeah. Well, there are all these offices, aren't there, that the banks have had sitting idle uh, as a part of the disaster recovery for, for the last 20 years, right? Um, and and I, I gather that they are coming into use now. So as a part of this being able to work in an office and socially distance, I think some of those might be finally uh, being used a little bit. Um, but to your point, yeah, there's obviously a big technical... It's interesting as well, because, you know, we're going to be reviewing our space usage as well. Um, the, the, the one thing this has proven to everybody is that you can work successfully at home. And, and actually, the worry is more the other way, isn't it? Is that people are working too hard, yeah. um, not taking enough time off. So we have concerns around that. And we're, we're constantly you know, telling staff, take time off, take it easy. Um, but we will be reviewing um, our space requirements because it, it, it would appear that the world has moved on you know, in a very short space of time, what would normally have taken, you know, many, many years. And, and I think the, the usage of office space going forward will change, you know, so we're looking at having um, perhaps a smaller footprint, we won't have a desk for everyone, we'll have hot desking, um, we'll have, um, you know, communal areas where people can socialise and have coffees, then we'll have meeting rooms, Yeah. <coughs> excuse me, where, where you need meetings, formal meetings or client meetings. And then people can choose to come in or not so i think i think that's the way we're going to go and and that's not um you know unique i don't think i think a lot of people are thinking that way even some of the very largest organizations yeah so many people want to start their own business very few people do um what's different about you why did you decide to go for it when most don't uh well there, there's 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 a few reasons, you know, um, I mean, I've always been um, a risk taker. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's just weighing up, up, up the risks and the opportunity. Um, and, and again, the desire, as we talked about to, to have that work life balance, I was, you know, working in banks, to go back into banking or to full time consultancy would have been too difficult for me with my personal family life you know uh, I'm, a, I'm a single dad and um you know I, I do have obligations so so it seemed the natural the natural thing to do and the the risk for me was mitigated by um the fact that i had the opportunity to to get you know a bunch of very very good guys to help me start that company so so actually the the family situation was a pivotal part in you making that decision yeah it it absolutely was. And I know, and I don't want to trivialize it, you know, in terms of the risk you're taking, but uh, being able to work flexibly um, at, at that stage in my life was very important to me. Um, and it's enabled me to do all of that. And, you know, I don't work any less hard because of that. I just work in a different place. You mm. 
that's all. I, you know, I pick, I pick my children up from school and then I come home and I get back to work again. You know, I do think it takes a certain type of individual to take that risk and be the entrepreneur because it is a heavy burden. You know, it is a yeah. heavy burden. And, you know, I defy people to say it isn't. I mean, I think if you do it the second or third time, um, it might be, it might get easier, but the first time you, you do it and, you know, you go home and you haven't got a salary check coming in yeah. that month uh, or, or any month in the future, it's quite a lonely path to take. So um, yeah, I am, I am a risk taker and it does take a certain type of personality. You've got to really believe in what you're doing and you've got to really back yourself and your team. Yeah. Along the way, um, who are the people that you kind of, if you sit back and look at your story uh, and your journey to here, who are the people that really kind of helped you along the way? Well, of course, there's your parents, isn't there? You know, you've got to, you've got to say something about them. You know, ob obviously, you know, your parents are influential on you. And, um, you know, as you get older, your friends are very influential on you. And interestingly, I've been, I've been lucky enough to um, hire a bunch of friends in, into the, the business that we got. And some of those friends I went to school with. So that's, you know, quite a long time ago. So having those relationships and those influences, I think, are important as long as they're the right type of friends and the right kind of influences. Um, but in you know in 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 my work career, I've I've had um, lots of really good managers and lots of really bad managers. And the ones that stand out, I've got had some great managers when I was working at Commerce Bank and Deutsche Bank. And you know, one of our um, our, our investors and board members is uh, a guy called Neil Smith, who was my boss twice at Pommers, uh, sorry, at Deutsche Bank. He was a 25 year Deutsche Bank guy. Um, and, you know, he hired me twice um, and, and, and still trusts me enough to invest in my company and come onto the board. And he's active in the board. You know, um, our, uh, our, our primary um, uh, funder from the beginning is a guy called Sebastian Gray, who is an amazing entrepreneur. who's got a wealth of experience um, he's particularly strong in, um, you know, marketing. Uh, he's very good at marketing and um, M&A type situations um, and it still adds amazing value to us every day. And, and this is definitely a journey, you know, for those people, again, who are either on it or thinking about it, that you cannot do on your own. Yeah. You absolutely can't do it on your own. You've got to rely on, first of all, the colleagues that you work with and ensure that they're really um, part of the same ethos and have got the same motivations as you. And then the people you surround yourself with as board advisors or investors, whatever, you absolutely need solid, good quality people who are there with you when you need them. And, and you cannot underestimate that. I mean, it, it would be really lovely for me to turn around and say all the success that I've got is down to me, but it, it absolutely wouldn't be true. 99.9% .9 is other people and their input and influence that they've, they've had on me and the company and the directions we take. Very good. And that actually, um, Tom, you know, not to belittle it, that also includes many of the clients that we speak to and the directions they say, have you thought about this? You should be doing this. And we go away and look at it. So, you know, we, we, do, we do take that feedback very, very seriously and listen to it. A lot and we've had some really great conversations with our clients as well nice um i always like to finish with uh, one specific question um which is if you could go back in time and speak to 
an 18-year-old Julian Dixon, what advice would you give him? Um, <clears throat> I'd, I'd think I'd, I'd say, um, you know, don't, don't worry so much, don't stress. Life, life, life is there and will unfold in front of you. And um, as long as you've got, you know, a good moral compass, which, you know, I think I did have, then, then things will pan out. Take opportunities where you see them and, and most importantly, enjoy it. You know, you've got to enjoy it and just do things that you, that you enjoy and work in industries that you enjoy because otherwise, you know, it can be a little bit tedious. And I think, you know, I certainly did and I think many people do or have suffered from doing things that they, they didn't particularly want to do or, or it wasn't right for them. And it's like, just, just don't do it. Find the thing that's right for you and, and get really good at it. So enjoy the journey. And get good at it. Get good at it. <laughs> I think yeah. if, you, um, if you really enjoy something, you, you, you have a tendency to get, get better. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Julian, thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And um, join us next week because we have a, another treat in store. We're going to be joined by uh, another CEO and founder, this time of Clause Match. So do stay tuned. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.